0: It's always a privilege for me to be here to share with my own church family, and especially this series, uh, Shine, Sharing Jesus Naturally. I mean, this is really where I live and where I've lived most of my uh, adult life, uh, serving with Jews for Jesus. When you call yourself Jews for Jesus, you're pretty much right there, huh? And uh, for those of you who know anything about our ministry, we love to go out and be really visible, shine, you know, to be seen evident. Uh, We put our t-shirts on with Jews for Jesus. Pretty clear what we're there to do and talk about. One I like to wear says, Jesus made me kosher. (laughs) But, you know, we're out there because we want to talk about Jesus. He's what it's all about. And uh, even when I'm not uh, wearing my t-shirt, which is most of the time, you know, I'm traveling here or there, I have a very natural lead-in, you know, I'm sitting on a plane, a Jewish guy sits down next to me, we start talking, he says, so what do you do? <laughs> you don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, it just leads to that, and, and not all of us have that kind of a opportunity in our life experience to just naturally flow into a conversation about Jesus, and yet that's our hope. When we talk about shining, we're, we wanna be talking about who Jesus is. And so to encourage all of us today, I just wanna suggest that whatever we're doing and whatever conversation we have, if we're a follower of the Lord, we wanna look to ask that question of people. Who is he? In in Israel, I, I go there regularly, uh, I say, Mihu, who is he? Uh, because most Israelis don't know. Believe it or not, less than one tenth of one percent of all Israelis know Jesus. They don't even know how to say his name in Hebrew, they call him Yeshu instead of Yeshua. Only 5% of Israelis know that Jesus was supposed to have risen from the dead. You can't really understand the story of Jesus if you don't know the resurrection. And so we want to ask that question there. But it's the question that's relevant everywhere, here in San Francisco as well. And so when you're in a conversation, just try that. Hey, can I ask you something? Who do you think Jesus is? Because everybody likes to have their opinion solicited. And it is a wonderful way to open up the conversation. It's not my question. I didn't come up with it. Jesus did. And it's in your handout here, this passage from Matthew chapter 16. And so let's read it together. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Lots of opinions out there. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. I would submit that there is no more significant question in all of history than this one. Asked and no more significant question answered. Who is he? Who is Jesus? And I think it's interesting that Jesus actually chose this geographic context To ask the question, Caesarea Philippi is way, way up in the northern part of Israel. Some of us who were uh, on the cornerstone trip, we got a chance to see it. We were right there in this place. There's a big cave and you can go up and see a bunch of different things. And One of the things that's most significant about Caesarea Philippi is that it represents a lot of claims concerning religion and spirituality and gods. It was originally in its earliest uh, civilization called Baal Hermon. Baal being the god or gods of the Canaanites. Hermon is the mountain. Mount Hermon is the largest peak in Israel, towering above all the other geography, snow-capped. People go skiing there now. And so this was a place where the Canaanites, the ancient people of the land, worshipped the god of the mountain, and that's how it was known until Alexander the Great conquered it and renamed it Banyas. Bani- it's still called Banyas in the tour guide uh, booklets. And Banyas is the Greek word for pan, the god Pan, of the Greek pantheon of gods. You perhaps have seen uh, artists' renderings of this god who is kind of goat-footed and plays a flute, hence the pan flute. And so this region became known as Banyas, And that cave that you see, we all stood outside and looked in. You can see there was at one point a river that flowed right out of it that was called, it was, according to the Greeks, connected to the ancient mystical, mythical river Styx. And so this is a very spiritual place. For those who believed in the Greek pantheon of gods and goddesses, Banias. But then, of course, the Romans came and they conquered it and renamed it, as it says in the scriptures there, Caesarea Philippi. Caesar being himself, someone who claimed to be God, the son of God, who required, who demanded his subjects worship him as God. And so with all of these varied claims to deity and spirituality and religious sentiment, Jesus chooses that place to say, okay, who do you say that I am? And as in Jesus' day, there were all these opinions, mostly from the Jewish people concerning Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. So lots of people have opinions today as well. And so when we ask people their opinions, they may have different answers. Some might say, well, he was a good man. He was a good man. And, you know, that's certainly one of the answers that people will give when I ask. In fact, we teach folks how to use what we call a proposal statement in asking this question. Because, in a sense, if it really is the most important question, then you don't want to kind of sneak it in on the way to some other place. As a proposal of, for marriage, you know, you don't like to say, hey, let's go to the movies, and by the way, will you marry me? You know, you set it up. There's a platform. It's an important question. So we say, can I ask you a question? Who do you think Jesus is? And some say, well, he's a good man. And the the response is, yes, he was a good man, but he's much more than that, you see. The Bible says that he's the son of God and that he came to die for your sins and for mine, but incredibly, he rose again from the dead. Do you believe that? You see, God is proposing to us. He wants to be our savior, and he wants you to be his person, but you have to say yes. That's the proposal. And so it's a good tool. You might try it sometime. I remember once I was teaching a guy about this, and we went out to Union Square, and he tried it for the very first time on one of these guys who had spent too much time in the 60s and 70s up at Hayden Ashbury, you know? So he, was, he had his cowboy hat on and his boots and his suede jacket with the long fringes, you know. So my friend said, hey, can I ask you a question? Sure, man. Uh, who do you think Jesus is? Jesus, wow. Jesus like a cosmic cowboy from outer space. <laughs> and my friend said, that's true. Jesus was a cosmic cowboy from outer space, but he's much more than that. <laughs> Not exactly what I intended. But you get the idea. We want to engage people. When we're shining, we're not shining ourselves. We're shining about him. We're pointing people. We're reflecting who he is. And Some say he's a good man. Some say that he's a good teacher. Uh, A lot of times people who say that haven't read what he taught. So it's a good thing to say, oh, have you read what he taught? No, you should. You're right. He is. He's a good teacher, but he's much more than that. But for the most part, A lot of people, especially on college campuses today, as I engage folks, they they say, I don't know. And frankly, I don't care. Guy lived 2,000 years ago. What relevance is that to me and to my life? And that's where we need to shine, right at that point. Because there are competing truth claims out there, just as there were at Caesarea Philippi in Jesus' day. There are in San Francisco. How do we shine? Was a, a preacher, black preacher in the 70s named Tom Skinner. And he'd come into a pulpit and he'd say, Christ is the answer. People would nod their heads and he'd come back and say, I said Christ is the answer. Amen, you know? And then he'd say, I said Christ is the answer. And everybody goes, Yeah. And he said, But what's the question? He wrote a book. If Christ is the answer, what's the question? And people have lots of questions today. And when we shine, we're shining the only genuine answers that can meet the deepest human need. Peter understood that. Jesus said, but what about you? Who do you say I am? He said, you're the Messiah. That term doesn't necessarily resonate to us today in the 21st century the way it did for Peter, but Peter was part of a people who had an expectation, who had an anticipation, a longing, a desperation for a deliverer, someone who was going to come, the Messiah, Moshiach, the anointed one. And for generations, people have been straining the neck and craning and waiting, when is he going to come? When is he going to come? And Peter Peter says, you're the one. You are the one we were waiting for. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, bingo. <laughs> <laughs> You're blessed. You're blessed because this was revealed to you. Oh, well, what's the bingo moment for people here in the 21st century? When Peter understood that Jesus is the Messiah, he understood, first of all, that he is the prince of peace. The Tsar Shalom. This was predicted by Isaiah, one of the many prophecies concerning this one that Peter was waiting for. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Sar Shalom. Now at the time Isaiah was writing, Israel was oppressed by the nations, when Jesus was on the earth. Israel was oppressed by the Romans. There's a lot of oppression. And so how can Jesus be the prince of peace in the midst of a world that sees so much oppression? Our lives are oppressed by fear. There is economic fear. I mean, what a time to be alive, you know, the up and down of the economy. It's like a giant roller coaster, and people who are counting on their bank account for their future are really in trouble. It's perilous times, and we don't know where it's going to lead. We've got wars going on. We've got people whose lives are falling apart. Where's the peace? Well, here's the thing. Shalom is not the absence of strife. Peace is not just a cessation of war. Shalom means wholeness. It means contentedness. It means the calm in the midst of the storm. It means the presence of God no matter what the outside circumstances might be leading us to. That's what Jesus promises. He says, "My peace I leave with you, not as the world gives." And you see that makes all the difference today. People who are struggling, I'll tell you what, my this last year has been one of the most if not the most difficult year for me. I've been struggling. And yet in the midst of it, I can say Jesus is my prince of peace. He's good. What may be happening in my life isn't good, but he's good. And because he's good, I can rest in him. And a lot of the times, the things that we do when we shine Jesus is not that, hey, I'm happy, happy, happy all the day. I came to Jesus and now all my problems have gone away. No. But like everyone around me, I've got issues I'm struggling with. And yet, in the midst of it all, Jesus is my calm in the storm. And that means something to people who are looking for that sure, solid foundation in the midst of their troubles. God doesn't necessarily remove us from the circumstances of our life, but he injects, he infuses his shalom in our lives no matter what's outside. And that's good news. That's something we can shine. That's an answer. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He's also the pierced one. And this is controversial because For many of the Jewish people in Peter's day, the idea of a suffering Messiah was not exactly well understood. No, he's going to ride in on a white horse, throw off the oppression of the Romans, give us a four-day work week, solve all of our problems, you know? That's who Messiah is. And yet the prophet spoke of the suffering one. The one who would come, and through his pains, and this is an amazing, if you never read Isaiah 53, the whole chapter is just 12 verses. Sometimes I love to sit down and read this chapter to a Jewish person, and I, I don't tell them where it's from. I say, hey, let me read this passage from the Bible. You listen and tell me who you think it's talking about. Personal person will listen, and uh, they say, well, yeah, that's Jesus, but, you know, that's the New Testament. No, actually, let me show you. It's Isaiah, a nice Jewish boy, wrote 700 years before Jesus ever came. And he said concerning the coming Messiah, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was pierced. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. That is the good news. That is the gospel in its core, in its essence. Everything that we have accrued to ourselves for our failings, our weaknesses, our frailties, he took it all, willingly. We receive forgiveness and peace because of his piercing, of his wounding, of his crushing. And we all need forgiveness. We all need the burden of our own failings to be lifted, and that's what he does. But it's so much more than that, because you see, he suffered so that when we suffer in his name, our suffering takes on even greater meaning. We find a way to take the pain of our lives and ground it in the reality of his suffering on our behalf. That, you know, there's not a person in this room that hasn't had their lives touched by some manner of suffering. Broken relationships, loss of family, job. And the reality is that most people in their suffering can turn toward bitterness or turn toward healing. I remember once I was standing in front of Macy's Department Store, 34th and Broadway, Midtown Manhattan, handing out Gospel Tracks, and I was approached by a woman, well-dressed woman in her late 60s, and she was angry. And she began to yell at me, you should be ashamed of yourself. How can you do this? Do you know what you're doing? Does your mother know you're doing this? (laughs) And then she spat out words that cut like a knife. She said, you're trying to complete the work that Hitler began. And she rolled up the sleeve of her dress to show me numbers on her arm. Ruth is a survivor of Auschwitz. The Holocaust. And and I understood her anger. I sensed her pain. And there was very little that I could say further to her that day. So then you'll understand my surprise when several months later, during a Friday evening service at our Jews for Jesus office there in New York, while I was giving the message, who should come through the back door but Ruth? And I recognized her right away, but I couldn't quite place where we had met. So after the service, I approached her, and she reminded me where we had met. (laughs) So I said, all right, Ruth, so what are you doing here? And she said, I have an open mind. (laughs) And she did. And she kept coming back every Friday night, started coming to our Tuesday night Bible studies. And what a privilege it was for me one Friday night to pray with Ruth to receive Jesus as her Messiah and to see the pain that she rightly carried with her all her life become grounded in the pain of the one who suffered on her behalf. What an amazing change. What amazing reality that he is the pierced one. And he's also the risen Messiah. It wasn't just suffering, but it was the triumph over that. Predicted by David here in Psalm 16. David wrote this psalm, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, that is the place of the dead, I'm not going to stay there. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. A clear prediction of the resurrection of the Messiah, and yet so clear that there became a controversy. He couldn't be predicting Yeshua, Jesus. He was talking about himself. And so Peter, this man who had come to experience the reality of Jesus and his truth, saw him die, saw him after he had risen again, was given the opportunity to proclaim this good news in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 2, he said, you know, David said of Jesus, and then he quotes this verse. He says, and if you think that he was talking about himself, look right over here. See that grave outside the walls of the city? That's where David is buried. We know he died. We know he's buried there. He wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about Jesus. Jesus rose from the grave. Yes, he died. And the most common image of his life is a crucifix. But the cross wasn't the end. He died to pay the penalty for our sins but death could not hold him because of who he was, because he is the Messiah. The grave couldn't keep him. He rose again from the grave and now that same resurrection power of God is available to be applied to the lives of all those who trust in him. That is such good news. So much worth shining for. But it goes beyond that because death is one of the most constant realities of life, and yet one that people work so hard to ignore the implications of. There's many who just adopt a kind of a nihilistic attitude toward life. Since it all ends in death, what difference does it make anyway? I was listening to a song by uh, the Dave Matthews Band called Dodo. You know, and he sings about the dodo bird that is extinct, and we're all like that, because we're just gonna be extinct anyway. And he has this line if the fate is sure, why would you play by the rules? Would you? Would you? And many people think about life that way. Who cares? You know, I'm all gonna we're all going the same place, we're all gonna die, so it doesn't matter how you live. Others will say, Well, you know. Really, I just don't want to think about it. And we have amazing capacity in our 21st century to push death out of our lives, even though it's there. And all of our lives are touched by it regularly. And yet, we block it out of our minds. I had an experience once that really drove this home for me. I was flying from London to San Francisco. And I was sitting in front of a couple. And the man began to have a difficult time breathing. And the flight attendant was called over. and Sure enough, uh, they asked, is there a doctor on the plane? And uh, the doctor and several nurses came up, and they began to help this man. And it got so much commotion, I had to get up and move to the bulkhead. And I was praying for this guy as they were trying to help him, and it was getting worse. And finally, the pilot comes on, and he says, everybody, please take your seat. Fasten your seatbelt. We have to make an emergency medical landing in Calgary. And so I went and I sat down, and the commotion is still going on, and I can still in my head hear the sound of the chest compressions and the air being forced out of this man's lungs as they tried desperately to save him. But they were unable, and we never landed in Calgary. He died. And I—I I mean the flight attendants are trained well how to, how to deal with the situation. They helped this poor woman. I could still hear her sound of crying or wailing. They moved her to a different cabin. They took a, a blanket, covered the man's head, left him there. And we're all in shock. And then the lights come on in the cabin, and the attendants come out with carts to serve lunch. And I'm thinking, lunch? <laughs> How can anybody eat, you know, after what we've just witnessed? And yet that's what people did. And for me, that flight was like a metaphor of our society. We just want to get past it, forget about it, as quickly as we possibly can. But we can't. That reality is all around us, reminding us our own mortality, staring us in the face. But you see, Jesus is the risen Messiah. He went there before us, and he conquered death. He died so that we might live. Death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him. And so we have hope. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? There's so much more than what we have in this life, and we have hope in him who rose from the dead so that we might be raised with him. And we can shine that very hope to a hopeless people who need to understand that God has so much more for his creation. He's the risen Messiah. And he's also the king of glory. David spoke of this. He asked the question really before Jesus ever got to. Who is he? (laughs) This king of glory. You see, Israel was looking for a king. David was a king, but he was an imperfect king, as we all know. He was really a a foreshadowing of the one who was to come, this king who would rule on the throne and, and all of Israel's enemies would be vanquished and there would be a time of peace and prosperity. That's part of this hope, this messianic hope. He's the king of glory. But for us, king, queen, we don't pay attention to that. Except when they get married in Westminster Chapel, right? (laughs) Yeah, we've got a democracy. How's that working out for us? (laughs) But you see, this issue of the King of Glory is not about a form of government, it's about the genuine need, the longing in every human heart for authentic leadership that doesn't disappoint us. We get disappointed, we're disappointed now. Elections come and go, politicians come and go, but there's someone who really is a king, who really is a leader, who doesn't disappoint. When he makes his promises, he keeps every one of them, and we can count on him to show us, lead us through the midst of the trial and into a better place. We all long for that. We're all looking for that. We all have... The hope for that kind of leadership, and it's gonna come, it's gonna come someday, maybe very soon, when the clouds will open up and there's the brightness of a thousand noonday suns. There's the King of Glory, he's coming. He's the genuine article, the one that we really have been longing for. And we shine him. But while he waits, that shining comes through our lives as we reflect his goodness and as we invite people to consider, who, who, who do you think he is? It's a challenge for us, I know, but we can do it. We can share Jesus naturally because it's all about him and not about us. Your life, my life, we can have our struggles, we can have our weaknesses, but we're not pointing people to our lives, we're pointing people to his Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And that's the question that we can can invite people to consider as well. We can share Jesus naturally because faith in him comes from the Father and not from the powers of our own persuasion. When Peter figured it out, when he said, you're the Messiah, Jesus, you're the son of the living God. Jesus didn't say, Peter, you're so smart. How did you figure that out? It wasn't a matter of his capacity or even someone else's good arguments. He says, You're blessed because the Father revealed this to you. And if you're a follower of Jesus here today, consider yourself blessed because the only way it can happen is because the Father revealed himself to you. Whether it was in a moment, a flash, or a process. It was his grace. And so when we shine, when we share Jesus, it's not up to us, you see. It's the Father's work, and we get to be a part of it, and so that relieves us of pressure, responsibility, burden. Oh, no, what happens if I get asked something and I don't know how to answer? It doesn't matter. You won't know. But you can reflect him. You can point to him. And in the midst of all the cacophony of competing truth claims, he will shine because he's the real deal. We can share Jesus naturally even when we failed. And we have. I know I have. <laughs> even when we have not done as we should, <laughs> you know, on the plane. Yeah, I don't feel like talking, right? So somebody says, so, so what do you do for a living? I say, I work for a nonprofit organization. Back to my book. (laughs) Yeah, I haven't done it all, and I, I mess up. But I'm in good company because this guy, Peter, who had the right words to say, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Not many days after that, when Jesus was standing trial before the Jewish leadership, he was outside warming himself by a fire, and some little servant girl comes by and says, you're with him? Nope. You're with him? Nope. I think you're with him. I don't even know the guy. That's that's pretty fantastic failure. Spectacular failure to shine. <laughs> one thing I, I have to say, I, I like this about Peter. He was the only one that at least followed Jesus to the trial, you know? He failed in the moment, but he, he had his heart. He wanted to go. And that's like most of us. We want to do it right there, but... Right at the moment, we might not actually have the courage. That's okay. If you're feeling badly about it, don't. You're in good company. (laughs) And God gives us more chances, other chances. Remember after the resurrection, Jesus calls his disciples together, and he takes Peter, who I'm sure had this failure looming in his mind. He says, walk with me a bit. Peter, let me ask you something. Do you love me? Ugh. Do I love you? Lord, you know I love you. I do. He says, I know. Feed my sheep. Because that's the outflow of love. When you love, you shine. And we can share Jesus naturally because doing so, that's the clearest result. That's the clearest outcome. That's the clearest byproduct of our love for him. Think about it. You talk about what you love. You fall in love, you want to tell your friends. You're getting married, you want to talk to people about it. Whatever we love, we want to share, we want to talk about. The more we love him, the more willing we are to talk about him. So maybe as we look at these aspects of who he is, we'll grow in our faith, and there are many more answers that we have in this one, this Jesus. The more we love him, the more faith we have, the more we'll shine for him and reflect his glory. That's the hope of our series. That's the hope of our hearts today. In a moment, the uh, ushers are going to come and receive our giving. The band's going to come back and play a great song flowing right out of what we've been talking about, a song that we can... Enter into, even as Peter had his declaration, we can today declare who he is. His name is Jesus. But before that happens, let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this series that we've had a chance to reflect on and think about and consider how you would have us to shine for you. Lord, there is one soul to save. Uh, We're thinking about maybe right now a person in our life that you've put there that we want to maybe have the opportunity to shine, to reflect, to to invite, to consider who Jesus is. Lord, whether through our lives or through our words, we pray that we would have the opportunity to shine for you so that that reflection might fill the need of the person next to us, that person you've placed in our lives so that together we might reflect your greater glory until Jesus comes.